recorded during the plague year of 2020. This is the Andromeda Minute, a show where Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays we go over one minute of Robert Wise's all-too-timely 1971 techno thriller, The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan of The Rocketeer Minute and EAA's The Green Dot. And I, I want to say before we get to going, Jim, I was really, uh, really proud, happy, and excited to uh, to join uh, Tierney and Chris on their uh, upcoming Movies by Minute podcast, Close Encounters. Oh, really? And wow. uh, so I got to be, I was privileged to be the uh, the first uh, first guest for the first week. Oh, cool. uh, and I believe that's starting, uh, of course, as we're recording this, I mean, the internet is timeless, so this will be meaningless in a month, but I believe it's starting December 14th of 2020 is when the first episodes are going to come out. Uh, so, so you got the you got the super title of present day. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I see uh, present day and then talk uh, TBM Avengers out in the desert. So that was. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Wow. That oh, was great. a ton yeah. of fun. Are we the first? Um, yeah. The first. Wow. But that's a whole nother movie. But we, <laughs> um, I, I have a question about I do not know military insignias, but that is definitely not the big red one. So what is what is that insignia on uh, General Sparks's uh, left shoulder? Do you happen to know? Let me let me scrub to that. And it looks like a big on. black one on a on a shield. Oh, it does. Yeah. Is that uh is that just a low visibility version of like the, is that, I don't know if that's first cavalry. I don't know my army stuff. Yeah. And I wish my buddy, uh, Eric were, were here. He joined us on the Rocketeer minute once he runs the, right. uh, the, the Lewis army museum out in Washington. I mean, um, I know like third infantry. I know I can recognize that yeah. one. Um, but this one, I don't know. I, uh, it's, it's peculiar. Um, maybe it's the, uh, you know, the, the Wildfire One team I have. That I have could no be idea. Wildfire One. I bet it's something sort of really well-known and obvious. And yeah. It's just going to feel uh, yeah, really. feel silly. But uh, um, that's interesting because it it's the same sort of layout as, as you said, the Big Red One. So I guess it's possible that they did a, a low-visibility version. But it didn't – this is early to do that low-visibility stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're still wearing red, white, and blue flags and things. So right. Now, I, I'm wondering, did Rory, uh, when uh, Rory was on, you guys talk about uh, everybody wearing their hats inside? Uh, yeah, yeah. But they, but this is this. They weren't wearing their hats back then. This is a new thing. Wearing their hats inside. Uh, this this came this is later in the show. We didn't have anybody with a hat indoors. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, because that's interesting. Because you've got. Uh, because what I was taught on Air Force ROTC is that I mean, as soon as you step inside, the cover comes off. The only weird exception is uh, is when you are reporting, and and so like for instance, I was you know asked to go see the detachment commander, fire plug, uh, hilarious lieutenant colonel who flew used to fly B fifty twos, and when you were told to go report to him. Then you, you know, you step inside, you snap to attention, and you salute. And this is one of the only times you salute indoors. So saluting, that means you have to have the, the cap on. Right. So you would, you know, reporting is ordered, sir, this sort of thing. And then uh, then if you were sort of told to stand at ease, then you could remove the cover. But uh, but you've got kind of a mix. You've got the general wearing his, but, uh, you know, who is yeah, well, uh, Airman so-and-so isn't. And Captain Morris, when we see him uh, running his checks, again, a bit looks a bit old to be a captain. Yeah, so. and this guy and this guy's army. He's an army general, and he's talking to a major in two different services. So I don't know. Right. I mean, he's like the operational guy in charge, but they're both wearing the same hat. Um, 
until very I, I yeah just, that's right but I, then you've got yeah major Manchek when he comes in he's wearing his blue which he used to call the overseas cap i'm not sure yeah. what they they sort of turned into and that one i always remember again leftovers from air force rotc uh that should be tipped so that it is two fingers above the right eye yes so he's got it cocked a little bit to the right maybe it could go a little bit more but uh that's one of those things that you know, I have no idea what I had for breakfast today. I'm not sure what day of the week it is, but I will always remember two fingers above the right eye. There you go. And, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and again, he's indoors, so it's just very, very peculiar. Um, one thing, I, there's so many things that bother me in this particular minute, but one of the ones that bothers me, I've never liked the phrase, it was a fluke, being a fluke, meaning that it's uh, unusual or a one-time thing. As a, as a child of... Uh, a native son of New Jersey, and when I used to go sh- uh, fishing with my dad uh, off of uh, Point Pleasant at the Manasquan Inlet, uh, flukes were plentiful. There is no, there is no fluke about a fluke. Flukes have two eyes on one side of their on one side of their body that face oh. upward, and that, that's the difference between a flounder and a fluke. A flounder has an eye on either side of a very flat body. A fluke has two eyes on one side of its body. That's interesting. I always thought that the that the flounders were the ones that had the two on both sides, and that they I, would. But so that's. that's now I'm hoping simple. I don't have it backwards because it's well, something that I, when I was a kid I was always told that was a fluke, but it was. Um, I may have it wrong. Uh, and if I remember right, when they're born, their their the eyes are on both sides, and the one actually sort of just migrates. It migrates, over time. yeah. That's how you can tell how old they are. Um, now I may have it completely backwards from what I remember it as a kid, but I well, remember. I don't, catching, I don't mean to second guess you. I just. I, I, the, yeah, uh, no. I, the the fluke was a much more. Uh, was a much less common thing. Like you started as a kid, you know, and you're studying your fish and things, you know what a flounder is, but didn't come across a fluke. When you said that flukes were plentiful, I thought you meant uh, whale flukes. Oh, no. I was So the, the whale yeah. tails and things you'd be yeah. able to, you know. Um, so yeah, the, something the, that's the, very always uh, sort of near and dear to me is a whole world of marine mammals and things as well. But Yeah, no, flu, fluke the fish is what I... Uh, fluke the fish. Uh, what was, you know, that was a thing that, that you could catch in... <laughs> And uh, they were very good eating, uh, kind of bony, but uh, very, very, e- very good, uh, very good eating uh, fish, mostly found on the, uh, you know, on the Atlantic Ocean on the eastern seaboard. But they seem to be very particular to the, the shores of New Jersey where, where I would fish. Um, we caught uh, flukes. Um, the uh, other big one was a blowfish. Blowfish was another big deal. Um, they were all uh, blowfish were always fun to catch. Uh, there, there is not much to eat on a blowfish, but they taste like scallops. If you like scallops, uh, blowfish is great. You basically you do a fillet on either. I, I don't. I know we're getting far away from this, but it's again, it's as as, as we usually do. Um, but just, <laughs> I think we're both just getting hungry. From behind the eyes to the tail, there's these two long fillets that you can get on the the top half of a of a blowfish, and it's just like eating. It's like eating um, scallops. You can broil them with butter, and it's it's wonderful. the The only downside of, of catching a blowfish is when you catch them, as the name implies, they blow up like like large beach balls. And uh, the only way you get them to go down is to put them in a bucket of water, and they will deflate themselves to sink to the bottom. Now, they're it's the same sort of behavior, but it's they're not the same as what we think of as a traditional puffer fish. Is that correct? Um, yeah, they are different. They are different from a puffer fish. They are not for, I don't think they're poison. They're like the puffer fish is poisonous, right? Right. There's, and the, it's a Japanese delicacy yeah. that if you get them prepared just right, there's a fair chance you won't die from eating it. So that makes it very popular. 
Yes, and I'm just looking it up as 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 you you're correct. The summer flounder or fluke does not move its eyes. The flounder do, the flounder does the fluke does the summer flounder the fluke does not. Interesting. So yes, thank thank you for correcting me. <laughs> I, I had no intention of. Uh, of I had doing no. That. I, I, I thought I was. That, uh, I thought I was getting schooled, but uh, that's that's what oh, school of fish. There you go. Um, it's, <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely um, yeah. That that is that is the right way. It just I we catch both. And they were both as common as the other. As far as I could tell, there was nothing flukish about fluke. So I wonder what the, uh, you know, to the internet, I wonder what the etymology is of fluke in that term. Is Was it all related to the fish or was it just a homonym? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just that people were less likely to see them. It's, um, they... Uh, uh, I know that they're, they, they're bottom feeders. I knew, I, like, the, where you'd have to... The way you'd fish for them is you'd have a sinker that you'd attach a right angle, um, a line, a stiff, a stiff piece of monofilament that didn't bend. You'd put a, a stiff uh, on top of the on top of the sinker. You'd have this ninety degree angle um, line, and then you'd have a hook hanging off of that. So the hook would, when when the sinker landed on the bottom of the uh, the seafloor, the uh, the bait that you had a worm or a you know, usually it's like crab meat or something that you'd have on the, on the hook. The uh, fluke or the flounder would come up to it at the right at the they they fed right on the ground level, so you had to get the hook just a little bit above the ground level so that they could bite it. Interesting. Um, but but uh, it makes anyway, sense this, is they're they're flat bottom fish. Yeah. Now, before we get away from flukes entirely, okay. uh, I just had a flash of inspiration by which I mean I googled something, and uh, according to uh, uh, one uh, sort of etymology site. Um, fluke as, uh, uh, as, as something that's unusual or sort of, or, you know, lucky, you know, happened by chance. They say that it originated in, uh, in the world of billiards. And, uh, so you got a really lucky shot at billiards and that there was some loose connection with whale flukes, uh, as in, uh, when a whale was going very, very quickly, they'd call it to go a fluking. So somehow going quickly hmm. became tied to... Uh, being tied to getting a lucky shot in billiards in the 1850s. Wow, the so. the, the places we go from from oh the places uh, we'll yeah. go. <laughs> well, let's let's go to another place. We finish up with um, uh, Sparks leaves. Then uh, Manchek goes over and talks to the the fellow who got to listen to the other two uh, boys get uh, turned into uh, solid pieces of uh, clotted blood. At the beginning of the movie, he's turned into a glorified telephone operator, and uh, Manchek <laughs> says. You know, call call wildfire because I don't have time. I'm going out to Big Head, which is where the uh, plane crashes. Right, and, which uh, just makes me think of uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm thinking about Big Head and this, and I love yeah. This is a send me word on Scrambler at Big Head Crash Base, and I just all those words <laughs> sound kind of cool, but I don't really quite get how I, they all fit together. I, I just want the mission patch. I just keep thinking yes. it's just Big Head, um, <laughs> yeah. so, something like the Telosians, maybe. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so we go back to uh, Captain Morris, who is the uh, the IT guy for uh, the, the comm center at uh, Wildfire, and we spend the rest of the minute looking at uh, a Teletype 33, uh, RCA Teletype 33, uh, which was my bread and butter back in the back in the late 70s. First jobs doing things worth programming oh, wow. for teletype machines and, and you know we are very very close to the same age but we are just a few years apart we're just barely far enough apart that i missed that era of 
of computers, cer- certainly oh. professionally. All I can um, say is count your blessings. Yes, those things exactly. They were a month. You know, the, the, this discussion as it starts where we get back with the senator and doing the uh, – the voiceovers talking about how we a piece of paper screwed this up. I can tell you that the the uh, teletype thirty threes are one of the best and worst designed mechanical objects in the world. It's 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 a lot like having a sewing machine and the cloth gets jammed in the foot and it's it's, it's just it's just like that to to use. The, I'm I'm just trying to think of other obnoxious mechanical objects and like the Singer sewing machine with a foot. That's probably where. It, it, they would jump the tracks. This is a rarity in that it has a a pin feed on either side. A lot of times, back during this time especially, there was like a roll of yellow paper that would come. I mean, it was like a paper towel roll. You drop it in, right. and it had no pins, and so the thing would start rolling itself up. And it would, if the paper was wet or if it had a wrinkle, it would start jamming itself through the uh, uh, through the rubber feeder at the bottom of it, and it would bend the it would bend the retaining. Uh, arm. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Just a bunch of nightmares. I'm getting PTSD thinking of. <laughs> Work how through hard it, Jim. Yeah, through but uh, <clears throat> that is, the... is amazing to think that you'd have something like that that would be friction fed and that would be so prone to uh, prone to errors. Not to not to jump ahead in a minute, but you know, one of the last lines in this one is, uh, uh, you know, we hear the the senator and and he's saying, you know, you're saying Stone's ninety million dollar facility, which you recommended, was knocked out by a sliver of paper. And and here's Jim O'Kane nodding and saying, "Yeah, that's that's quite plausible, actually. <laughs> you, Thank you. You got it, Senator. <laughs> it's it's right there. It's just I I I dread the day. I, I I mean, that's my my computer career where I was getting paid to do things was working for a, an oil company and maintaining or improving or updating and all kinds of stuff with computers. Just as we were going from boxes like that into PCs, and then when PCs came around, you thought, oh, everything's going to be fine, and then came the uh, the Epson 88 computer or the Epson 88 printer, which had pin feeds and all kinds of paper problems. It's the same things that, that these things were doing, only it was a whole new decade of, of horribleness. Right. Um, Although at least you weren't relying, uh, and this is something that's so hard for people to grasp now, the printer wasn't your only form of output. Yeah. Which yeah, was that's... which is so hard to, to think about, sitting down at a computer, executing some, you know, writing some code, executing it, and then going to the printer to see what happened. Uh, yeah, you know, or, when, or when having, you did have a machine that had no no monitor. I know you might have banks of lights and switches and things that would give you some some feedback, but yeah, just and, trying and, to grasp that stage is amazing. And that the idea that, you know, you your day stopped if you ran out of paper. You, right. you know, it's like, I don't have any more paper. I can't do anything more with it's, this computer. I can no longer compute. Yeah, you, you can just hope to read the whatever it's printing on the rubber roller. Um, but yeah, it's oh, just so many, so many horrible things to, uh, to bring back every stuff. And I, I mean, I, it was a great time. I'm glad I lived through it. And I'm glad I don't ever have to live through it again. You know, thank God for, uh, for big flat screens and, uh, and never have, you know, I mean, the only thing we have to worry about is the, the most expensive fluid in the world, printer ink. So that's, uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Wow. It's priceless. What, you know, what was, what was other, your first, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to know what was your first computer? What, what did you work? So the on? first thing that I, so the the first one that I would have truly gotten hands on uh, was so I was in sixth grade uh, when the first Apple IIs came around, and okay. uh, so eleven, and then going on twelve years old. So so you know very definitely right at the very very sort of first day of the home computer uh, revolution. Um, 
then uh, and so some dear friends of mine they bought one uh, and had it and then we got a couple at school and I was the cool kid in a room full of nerds I was you know not saying much because I'd already used an Apple II when <laughs> thanks to my friends and then uh, first thing we got at home uh, was uh, sort of you know day one uh, dad went down to uh, the Sears Business Center store and bought like one of the very, very first IBM PCs right off, right off the oh, bat. Wow. So what was that? Was that the 8086 or 8088? Yeah, 8088. 8088. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we had one floppy drive, then we added another one. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, we bought that CGA graphics card so we could go from, from uh, two colors to four. Wow. And, you know, and now, of course, we laugh. We measure our displays in, in tens and hundreds of millions of colors. It's unbelievable. <laughs> But, uh, well, it changed, changed my life just spending time uh, tinkering with that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how much, yeah, how much is, I mean, years have gone by, but it's just amazing how much different the world was when we were that age. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like that much time has passed, but it's been such a revolution. And, some, and you know, it was just, it was, uh, it was the computer's turn to, to step into the fray and to accelerate. And I, I wonder now, like, if... Uh, there's some magic point, and and maybe it's the smartphone revolution or the you know the tablet revolution, which after 20 plus years Apple finally got right with the iPad in 2010. Uh, after sorry, 20 plus years of other companies trying it. Um, but at some point, though, even though Moore's law still seems to uh, to roughly apply, like is my desktop computer 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Is it going to absolutely blow my mind, or is it just going to be sort of steadily and incrementally faster and better? And it does seem like on the desktop side, the the speeds and things still change at a at a remarkable pace. But sort of what you're really able to do and what you're able to accomplish with them, you know, the revolution seems to have tapered off a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's or it's become it's become that we don't. We don't really realize the that pace right? because we're we're expecting that pace to continue. I mean, yeah, that's a great I, point I'm thinking well. like like VR VR is coming along, and uh, there's stuff. I have an Oculus Rift that uh, my son gave me three years ago, and three years ago there were a couple of things you could do with it, but nowadays there's things like you can just climb climb into it, and you're looking at the 1939 World's Fair and looking oh. around, and 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 people are building like they're building home built. VR worlds and you can just download stuff. It's like fonts now. They're free and you can, you know, like you can download stuff from NASA so you can stand outside the space station and look around and you can pick things up and do, you know, and it's like, and all this stuff is, I, I think the biggest part of it is the freeness of it all, the, the lack of having to, to buy, you know, things that would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars are now either $10 or free on the internet. And that's, that's the revolution that's, I'm always astounded at it, that how cheap so much of this stuff has become. Right. Um, but we reach an inflection point where we don't realize it. Um, one one thing before I I, I don't I don't want to hang on to you too long here, but uh, one thing we're talking about with inflection points, where uh, technology changes and it goes up a step, and you suddenly go, wow, that's a that's a whole different world. This thing, and I know that you and and our good buddy Chris Henry have uh, collaborated on a book about one of the major inflection points from World War II, the B seventeen. And uh, there's a you have a book out now uh, 
about the the B seventeen and its history, and rather a unique way of looking at it. Wow, that was that might have been the best segue in all of human history, Jim. I, <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to I need to run grab a hat so I can put it on and tip it to you. Um, that's uh, yeah, Chris. Uh, uh, as you said, my good buddy Chris, uh, our our good buddy Chris, at uh, working at EA. Um, had a real has a real passion for the mission of our B seventeen, which is to go out and educate people, uh, and you know, both uh, uh, reuniting veterans with uh, with this airplane they would have flown, you know, seventy eighty plus years ago, and uh, and then letting you know the generations that followed really get a sense for what that was like to go to go fly on this airplane, and so we use it for we do a ride uh, a ride program and a whole educational outreach program around it, and. Chris uh, found that uh, people were just sort of finding his way to him initially, um, calling up and saying, you know, I, I just went for a flight on this B-17 because, you know, I never met my grandfather, but that's what he did during World War II. And, um, and it inspired me to learn his story. And Chris is really good at digging up those stories. And so he'll go back and say, well, I found these records and your granddad flew with this crew and here's a picture of him and his crew and this was the the missions that they did and things like this and so we started amassing this incredible set of stories and he would occasionally give a presentation and share a couple of them and uh, our CEO Jack Pelton took him aside one time and said you've got to do a book so Chris started pulling these these things together and then I came on uh, as an editor and and a bit of a co-author to to help sort of shape and organize these things and uh, we came up with something that, that uh, yeah, we're especially proud of. And it's the stories of the people whose lives are touched by this, uh, this big, magnificent bomber that we're, we're so privileged to own and be able to fly around. So uh, if uh, something that's of interest to you, again, you head over to EA.org and you hit the shop tab and you look for a book uh, called The Final Mission. And uh, there are... Uh, you know, I said I, I did a, a considerable amount of writing for the book. I did uh, all of the editing for the book with a team of people. So, you know, each one of us is going through and doing our passes on it. I've read every page of the book probably 12 times, and there are still <laughs> stories in there that uh, put a lump in my throat and bring a tear to my eye. Uh, when you think about what that experience meant to people, when you see, uh, you know, great granddad and great uh, granddaughter on the same flight and... And him suddenly, you know, suddenly the sweet old man becomes the spry expert who's explaining everything that's going on. And, you know, watch the kids sit there wide-eyed as they get aboard this this great living, breathing, uh, just burly machine. Uh, that the way that it brings history to life is really, really compelling. So it was a it was an absolute privilege to bring some of those stories together and put them in a book and and share them with people. It is such a good book. I would say that it has an honored place on my bookshelf, but it's never on my bookshelf. It's usually on like my kitchen table or next to my nightstand because, like you said, you, you go back and you read a couple of a couple of pages, and it's just the the stories pop out at you. Um, I I really I I've, I thought oh this is a, when I first started looking through, I was like oh these are nice pictures. Oh that's an interesting story. But then it just kind of it, it pulls you in, and you you realize all these people that have this you know, this hunk of metal that that flies through the sky. It changed their lives and, and affected their lives so much. And you guys both came up with great ways of sharing those stories. So I, I really appreciate you both knuckling down and, and putting this massive uh, bit of history together. Well, um, thank you for that, Jim. That, was, that means the world coming from you. And it was a, 
it was a big undertaking, but uh, truly a labor of love. One little thing I have to point out is uh, that uh, there's some some quick little videos that we shot aboard our airplane, and that was you talk about how spoiled we must be. And imagine, like we would laugh in the middle, like imagine what it's like to, to write a book about a B-17 when you don't just own one. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we did these things. There's there's some QR codes throughout the book, and it's organized by crew station, pilot and co-pilot, uh, bombardier, et cetera. And uh, so you point your phone at the QR code, and we give you 30 seconds to a minute or so of just point-of-view video from that crew station that we shot aboard our, our airplane. And uh, there's an Easter egg in there. If you, if you look at the video about the radio operator, and I think that's all I'm going to say, uh, there's an Easter egg uh, that so far, as far as I know, nobody has ever come back to us and uh, acknowledged that they spotted it. So there's my oh. challenge. And oh, Jim, okay. I'll now tell you to, what it is when we're uh, off yeah. here. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go get my iPhone out and go get the book <laughs> off my kitchen table again. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, again, Hal, thanks so much for, uh, for, for staying with me this week and, and chatting about all this stuff. Uh, I feel... Uh, I feel we've beaten this. We've beaten this week to death on on a bunch of different topics, and some of them even involve the movie. So that's good. right. And then remember that time we talked about fishing? I remember <laughs> yes. that well. That was great. And and I'll finally get the, the fluke and a flounder right in my head. And I, <laughs> oh gosh, so those those crabs weren't lobsters that my dad was telling. Oh my gosh, I have to I have to rethink my childhood. Your whole life was a lie, Jim. Yeah. Let's face it. <laughs> if that is your real name. Oh gosh, who was that kid at the Point Pleasant Pier? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'll have to ponder all these things. But uh, anyway, again, Hal, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm sure you'll be on again sometime in the future. We'll have we'll have you on, and we've got a whole we've got a whole podcast coming up about the best years of our lives uh, that people will need to check out uh, in 2021. So uh, we lots more lots more B17 talk. That's for sure. Oh, I can't wait. Ah, uh, wow. Well, anyway, uh, thanks again for being with us, and uh, everybody, please enjoy the weekend. The best way to enjoy the weekend is to uh, wipe out this plague by doing those three things that we always talk about. Uh, Stay six feet away from everybody. Wash your hands for at least 20 seconds and wear a mask. I wear a nice homemade mask that my wife made and it's got Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock on them. So I really feel proud going outdoors with that. Um, anyway, we will see you here next time next week on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.